0: How do you tend to react when you experience frustrating ignorance and inefficiency? So your internet isn't working and you try to get your service provider to fix it, but they're frustratingly slow because the lines are provided by Telstra and they have to get Telstra to come and check things out and it goes on and on for two weeks. Do you shout and try to bully them into prioritising your problem? What if the ignorance is about Christianity and people are making put-down comments that show they don't really understand it. How do you react then? Or what if you are the subject of some injustice or unfairness? A a person comes up the outside bus lane and pushes in when you've been waiting to cross Sydney Road and further crawl down to the spit for the last 10 minutes. It isn't fair and if your car was equipped with rockets like the Batmobile, would you use them? Maybe not, I hope. But if your words could be weaponized, then look out. What if the injustice was because you are a Christian? Would you seek a way to retaliate and hurt those who hurt you? And of course, that is a very real question for some of our brothers and sisters in countries where there is persecution. How do we react to ignorance and injustice? Well, as Christians, we have the example and lordship of Jesus to help us navigate the frustration and difficulty of dealing with ignorant or unjust people. Here is what Peter, the disciple of Jesus, whom we saw very much last week when he denied the Lord Jesus, here's what Peter wrote to the Christians in the first century who were being persecuted for their faith in an area we now call Turkey. recommendation in that teaching, that command to the first century Christians, Peter is giving us a pointer to what we might learn from our passage in Luke's Gospel today as we continue our series in Luke 21 to 24 in the lead up to Easter. We've arrived here in Luke 22 at the final morning of Jesus' life. It's daybreak And the council of the Jewish people, or Sanhedrin, are all up early and they're very busy. They're very busy in their ignorance committing a great injustice. Which leads to my first point, that Jesus endured great ignorance, yet he did not mock or ridicule. Jesus had been the subject of interrogation by the religious leaders during the night, but now things get official. And the issue is over Jesus' claim to be the Messiah or the presenting issue. The issue for the leaders is that they want Jesus to say he's a Messiah and get himself in trouble with the Romans. Remember what Messiah means. It's the Hebrew words Messiah, the the, the same word in Greek is Christ. It meant anointed one. It comes from the Old Testament, what they did to their kings or, or other specially appointed people. They were anointed with oil to set them apart for the tasks as God's servant. Over time, in the Old Testament, they begin to look forward to the Messiah, the the great king. The the Messiah is the Jews' long-awaited king, a king who was promised by God, who would have a special relationship with God. He'd be specially endowed with the Spirit. He'd be a descendant of the great King David and he'd be God's instrument for salvation of the Jews from their enemies and the gathering together of all peoples In relationship with God. He was someone to look forward to, especially when you were under Roman control in the first century. Now, from earlier in Luke, we know that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's proven it by his miracles, but the Jewish council won't recognise that They're not really wanting on this morning to know if Jesus is the Messiah. They've already firmly decided that he isn't. All they want is that Jesus might incriminate himself by saying he's the Messiah because they want to get rid of Jesus. The Pharisees among them don't like the way Jesus has consistently challenged their status and mocked their hypocrisy. The priests among them don't like the way Jesus recently upset their business when he showed up in Jerusalem a week earlier and overturned all the temple money tables and threw out the animal sellers. These men are Jesus' enemies and they know that their Roman overlords will not look kindly on anyone who is a potential threat to their rule, as they understood the Messiah Will be. Jesus knows, of course, that the religious leaders are ignorant of the truth and too blinded by their prejudice to examine it properly. So, to verse 67 there in chapter 22 on page 906, if you are the Messiah, t- tell us to that. He refuses, verse 67, if I tell you, you will not believe me and if I ask you, you would not answer. He knows they aren't genuine seekers of truth. But actually in verse 69, he goes on to give them the confession they want. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. By predicting that he'll be seated at the right hand of God, Jesus is as good as saying, yes, I'm the Messiah because obviously God's king rules under God uh, in this image at God's right hand. And you can tell that the leaders understand that. So they ask the question again using another expression, meaning Messiah. Look at at verse 70. They all ask, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. Son of God there means Messiah. Don't be um, misled. They aren't asking Jesus if he is divine. We know Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God the Son, From John's Gospel, the Word was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that, but from the Old Testament, the expression the Son of God meant Messiah. You saw that in our Psalm 2 reading that Catherine brought us a moment ago. In that one, the Messiah or anointed one is told by God, you are my son, today I have become your father. Uh, The Son of God is in the Gospels almost always a a reference to the Messiah. So here's an example from earlier in Luke. So it's Luke 4, verse 41. We're told this, Demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. When Jesus says, you say that I am to the leader's question, are you the son of God? It's like he's saying, well, I wouldn't put it that way, but I can't deny it. They're ignorant of what it really means to be the Messiah and what being the Messiah involves, but that's definitely who he is. So you say that I am. Earlier in Luke immediately after the disciples declared that they knew Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus said this to the disciples. It's going, not coming up here. Luke 18. Sorry, there's something missing here. Can you take over, Bruce, and go back, please? Oh, no. Forward. Sorry, everyone, for this. No, back. Yeah. <laughs> yep, okay, thank you. All right, I've made a mistake, I think. So to a blank, please, Bruce. Back bullet blank. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus said that way back to the disciples. He knew all along that it was going to come to this with the leadership of the Jews. And so he sticks with the plan and entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. So next time when you are faced with proud ignorance where someone will not listen to you, will you remember Jesus? Will you try and follow his example, his example of he who committed no sin in the face of the leader's arrogance and foolish ignorance? He didn't fly off the handle, he didn't mock and ridicule, but he spoke calmly despite the provocation he must have felt. He's quite an example, isn't he? It's not only ignorance, though, that Jesus has to handle before breakfast that morning. It's horrible injustice as well. So, my second point Jesus endured great injustice, yet he did not retaliate or make threats. The whole scene here moves from the Jewish council to a hearing with the Roman governor Pilate. The reason the Jewish leaders are so anxious to get Pilate on side is that the Romans do not give subject peoples the right to determine capital punishment. For obvious reasons, They don't want groups like the Jews going around and executing people who are friends of Rome. So the Jews need to get Pilate to agree to Jesus' execution. Now here, the fact that Jesus has said he is the Messiah is thrown into play. They're trying to make Jesus look like a dangerous revolutionary who would seize his kingship by force against the Romans. But Pilate's no fool. Why would the Jews who hate being under Rome's control, suddenly come and report someone who had capacity to bring their freedom. And since when have the Jews been champions of Rome's honour and interests? And then go from that logic to look at Jesus. He looks at Jesus, who doesn't look like a tough freedom fighter. In verse 3, he's incredulous there in chapter 23. Are you the king of the Jews? And again, that reluctant reply of Jesus, you have said so, Jesus replied. I wouldn't put it quite like that, but I can't deny it. And now we see the first indication of the great injustice that is going to occur here when Jesus' innocence is made clear by Pilate there in verse 4. I find no basis for a charge against this man. Now that should be the end of the matter, shouldn't it? But Pilate's not strong enough. He doesn't want trouble with the Jewish leaders and they're really working themselves up. They insist. He stirs up all the people. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way here. The mention of Galilee gives Pilate the chance to pass the buck to to Herod, the Galilean half-Jew Roman puppet ruler of Galilee, where Jesus hails from. Herod's probably in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Imagine the scene at Herod's hotel. The Jewish leaders are going ballistic. We're told vehemently accusing him. Jesus is just standing there, refusing to do his miracle party tricks for Herod or to speak. So eventually Herod gives up in frustration and contents himself with ridiculing and mocking Jesus before sending him back. To Pilate. It's all very mean, it's all very unjust. Pilate is now forced to handle the case and he again announces Jesus' innocence. Look at verse 14. And he said to them, "'You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. "'I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. "'Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. "'As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death.' There's no basis for the charges or for the death penalty. So release him. Notice, I'll punish him and then release him, not before a little beating to appease the Jews. But that doesn't appease the Jews. That doesn't satisfy Jesus' enemies. They want him dead. And now we see the greatest injustice of all, that the guilty murdering man is released and the innocent is sentenced to death. Barabbas was in prison because he was the revolutionary murderer that the Romans most feared. I guess he's murdered in the insurrection he, he tried to pull off. He's murdered a Roman soldier or official as he sought to overthrow the Romans. Can you believe the injustice that's being committed here? Pilate tries not to be part of of it by appealing to the leader's better side. Look at verse 22. For the third time, why? What crime has this, command, this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release, release him. But appeals to what is just have no sway on this Friday morning in Jerusalem. It's the unjust that prevail. Pilate ends up subordinating individual justice because of the demands of the pressure group. I guess Pilate fears a riot as their shouts for crucifixion get louder and more heated. And so verse 25, we're meant to really get the point here. Luke's being repetitive. He released the men who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. What do you think Jesus, what do you imagine Jesus was doing throughout this drama between Pilate and the Jewish leaders and crowd? Imagine, I guess, he was just standing there, again though, knowing where it'll head. He told his disciples this earlier In Luke, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him and spit on him and they'll flog him and kill him. Well, he's been handed over to the Gentiles, Pilate, Herod. They've mocked him, insulted him and flogged him. Soon they'll kill him. A great injustice has been committed this Friday morn and will be committed in a few hours' time. Yet none of it is a surprise to Jesus. Notice he doesn't retaliate or make threats. He could have called on a legion of angels to come and blitz the Romans and the Jews, but he knows that this was always the plan, as he told his disciples, that as Messiah he would save his people that he'd saved the world by first dying on the cross. Only when the Messiah had saved people from their sins could they be cleansed and free to join his eternal kingdom. The great irony of this first Good Friday is that human rejection, men doing their worst, becomes the way by which God welcomes people, both Jew and Gentile, into his family. It doesn't mean, of course, that it was easy for Jesus, but let's remember again what the Apostle Peter realized about Jesus' approach to this whole trial. Back in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, again, 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And what did Peter say we might take from that? Well, again, to this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As a follower of Christ, if you try to follow Christ's example, how will you react to the next injustice you encounter. He committed no sin. He did not retaliate. He made no threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Am I saying that if you follow Jesus' example, you'll let people mistreat treat you and, and walk over you and do nothing? Well, sometimes you might have to And on those occasions, entrust your situation to him who judges justly and ask for God's help. But other times, it will be important to not sin as you take up some uh, action, that reaction you can have, to not sin in retaliation with your words or actions while taking the proper course that's available to you. This doesn't mean, of course, that someone suffering abuse must put up with it. They should move out of that situation. Jesus was a prisoner. He didn't have a chance, obviously, to move out of that situation. His path to the cross was clear anyway. But what about if there is injustice in, say, a situation like your workplace or a social group you belong to? You're blamed for a mistake you didn't make. What What are your options if you're following Jesus' example? Revenge on someone, that won't be one of them, will it? Maybe there's a way to speak to someone who's made the decision that disadvantaged you. Or maybe there isn't and you're left only with the option to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. When you do that, the thing is to ask God for the strength to put it behind you while you leave it in his hands to help you cope with the frustration of wanting the justice and not getting it. In our passage today, Jesus has been the victim of ignorance and injustice, yet he remained strong throughout. He remained committed to obeying God, to following the big plan no matter what. Do you find that inspiring? It is, isn't it? It's challenging. It's inspiring. I want to finish with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. He predicted in Isaiah chapter 53, the coming of a servant of God who would suffer unjustly for the sins of everyone else. And Peter, in that quote we've been looking at, has been picking up a verse from Isaiah 53. The verses I've chosen are a great poetic commentary on Luke chapter 23. When I read these words, I love Jesus more. It helps me to appreciate more what the Lord has gone through for us. So I'm going to read these words from verses 7 to 9 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful truth that the Lord Jesus in his death Was your means for us to have forgiveness, salvation from our sins, and adoption into your family for eternity? We thank you that for the transgression of us, he was punished. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to, as we've observed the ignorance and injustice that Jesus had to endure, we pray that you would help all of us as his people to learn from his example. We pray, Lord, for help when we face difficult situations of people mistreating us, that we, like him, would commit no sin, that we would not seek retaliation, that we would entrust ourselves to you who judge justly. Please help us in the situations, help any of us who might currently be in such a situation. Give us the strength, show us the way to act in a way that brings you and the Lord Jesus' glory. Amen. We are going to sing our next song now, and I especially asked Peter if we could have this song, Jerusalem, as the song that that followed uh, this sermon because it's a very moving song uh, of how uh, Jesus was treated and how he kept on going forward for for our sake. Um, Let's stand and sing Jerusalem.